Tonight I want to start um, talking about the Four Noble Truths, because the Four Noble Truths is the clearest articulation of what the Buddha realized that allowed his mind to be free of suffering. But I want to start with the Fourth Noble Truth, which is the path to be developed, the path of practices to be developed to realize this profound and transformative and transcendent uh, knowledge. Now the Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. There's the training in sila, or living in harmony, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. And it essentially is Mindful, it's a practice of mindfulness, of intention, before speaking or acting. And so it's a, it's a mindfulness practice. It's not just uh, a commandment, don't do this. And we're, we're practicing the precepts here, which as you can read are to undertake the training to refrain from harming others by killing, by stealing, and so forth and so on. And the only way we can do that with any understanding, really, is to watch our own mind and to see what the motivation is in the mind for acting the way we do and speaking the way we do. But even if we can do that with some fair degree of continuity and consistency... As you know, the mind can be pretty pretty busy, uh, whinging and whining, complaining and scheming and strategizing, all kinds of unskillful things. And so there's a second training of the Noble Eightfold Path that is more powerful and more subtle to deal with the mind that is obsessing with these tormented states of mind. So, this is the development of mindfulness. Samadhi is samadhi, or the collectedness of the mind, the uh, concentrating of the mind, or the stability of the mind, is accomplished through practicing mindfulness, which is what we're doing here. And the degree of collectedness of the mind, or the degree of the stability of the mind, or the degree of the concentration of the mind, is directly proportional to the continuity of moments of mindfulness. So it's the more continuous the mindfulness, the more collected the mind, the more samadhi. And what I mean by the continuity of mindfulness is there are many different kinds of meditation. There's mantras and visualizations and there's uh, Brahma-viharas like loving-kindness and compassion and there's insight practice and there's watching the breath and there's, there's all kinds of reflections. And any of them can be a mindfulness practice for the development of samadhi in that if we consistently as continuously as possible, send our mind, our attention, 
to the object of meditation, whatever that object is, and you just send it and send it and send it, and you just keep each each moment's intention is to connect with and to sustain your attention on that meditation object, and you do that over and over. In time, the the power, the flow of the mind is going in that direction so steadily, so continuously. There's no opportunity for other tormenting mental states to get into the mind. The mind is so directed in a single direction that you don't you don't start having doubt and worry and anxiety and fretting and stewing about something from the past or the future. It just doesn't happen. There's no room in the mind to let those thoughts in. And so in this way, that kind of mindfulness purifies the mind of the obsessive torments. And this this is a powerful practice. It's much more powerful than just noticing your intentions. And it's much more subtle because it's working with the activity of the mind, the, the rampant obsessive tendencies of the mind. But nevertheless, even though we can practice mindfulness in that way with some continuity. There are just times in life where we can't be as continuous, we get distracted, uh, conditions are such that we get kind of diverted from our attention, and, well, anything's possible. Because the purification of the mind that's dependent on the continuity of mindfulness can be disrupted. You know, the the train gets derailed. (coughs) goes off into the ditch and then you find yourself acting out in a way that's not so skillful or obsessing in a way that's really painful or causing you or others suffering. And so the Buddha understood that there was a third training necessary, a more powerful training and a more subtle training to deal with these underlying tendencies we might call them the default setting of the mind that has a tendency to resort to aversion and blame and desire and frustration and disappointment and self-pity. And, and, and we all have some level of a default setting in all of these tormented states of mind. We all experience them at different times. And so the practice to address the underlying tendency towards indulging in these mental states is vipassana. And vipassana doesn't just purify your intention before speaking or acting. It doesn't just purify your mind in a moment of connecting with your chosen meditative object. It purifies your understanding. It changes the way you understand experience. So that with this new understanding, the mind will not resort, will just won't go towards these unskillful, unwholesome, suffering-causing states of mind. So I really want to talk about Vipassana. We're practicing mindfulness for the development of Vipassana, or insight. But I want to talk about this, this practice of Vipassana, this practice of the development of wisdom. Because in the Noble Eightfold Path, the wisdom factors are right view and right thought, or right intention. 
Now, when we say right view, right thought, in as factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, the right about right view and right thought means that it is the way of viewing experience that doesn't lead to suffering or leads away from suffering. That's what the right is. That is the Buddha's uh, the baseline characteristics of the Buddha's teaching and what he said he taught was, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's it. Whatever else there is to be taught and to be learned and to be understood and all that, that's, that's tangential or it's a corollary or it's a kind of a complementary. But the baseline direction of the Buddha's teachings is, does this experience, is this experience suffering? Or does this experience lead to suffering? Or is this experience leading away from suffering? Now, when I first heard the word suffering, when doing my first retreats, you know, the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, and it was translated as the truth of suffering. I I didn't get it. It's like suffering. Wow, I was 26. I was full of piss and vinegar and very confident, arrogant to the point of, you know, insensitivity and like suffering? Who? Me? I'm, I'm doing fine. My misunderstanding was that if I was suffering, there was something wrong with me. And that's not the Buddhist teaching at all. And I'll speak more about the First Noble Truth in a later talk. But I just couldn't open to the idea of suffering. I mean, sure, we all suffer loneliness and fear and anxiety and self-pity and jealousy. But I didn't consider that suffering. That was normal. Well, it is normal. It's normal suffering. <laughs> so, but it, to, to, to open to that as a, as a possible, that there's a possibility of working with this kind of suffering is just outside of my range of possibility. So it's important to hear about right view. It's important to hear about the Four Noble Truths because it changes the way we think about our experience. Just the way we think about it. It doesn't really change our beliefs, but just changes the way we think about it. And that's an important first step. And that's what right view is. Right view is hearing the way to understand experience that will lead to the end of suffering or lead to less suffering. So, right view has a very um, predominant place in the Buddha's teachings, in the Noble Eightfold Path. The whole path starts with right view. And in fact, I often give a talk on right view, the the first talk of the retreat. So, I'll give it today, instead. So, Sariputta, who was second to the Buddha in the development of wisdom, at the time of the Buddha, was talking with some monks one time, and they'd heard about right view, and so they were asking him, well, what, how, uh, how do we get this right view? Where, where do we get this right view? How do we get it? What is this right view? Or how do we establish right view in our own mind? And Sariputta said there are two elements of right view. Or we could say skillful view, if you will. 
The first is that the right view, skillful view, must be heard from someone else. You have to hear it from someone else. Now, you know, we're, we're 21st century, Western, educated, bright, you know, problem-solving type people, and for us to be told, you can't figure this out, you can't solve this for yourself, you need me to tell you how. Yes, you know, that's, that doesn't, that's not easy to accept for most of us. But remember I spoke the first night from, uh, in a commentary on Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, admonition, eh? the, the kind of encouraging counsel, that he said, one of the factors that leads, one of the six factors that leads to good dhammas is to be docile, to be teachable. And so this is the teaching of the Buddha, or this is the teaching of Sariputta that the Buddha confirmed, to arrive at right view in your own experience, you have to hear about it from someone else first. Okay. You know, here at Cloud Mountain, if the sun comes up tomorrow in a way that we can see it, we'll see that it arises over there in the east, it travels overhead, and it sets in the west later in the day. A few hours later, it comes up in the east again, travels overhead, and sets in the west. From our own direct observation, our own perception, we would say the sun travels around the earth. Right? We don't have any other way of understanding it. We see it. That's the way it is. That's what our perception tells us. And yet we've been told since we were you know, six or seven, no, 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 the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth is spinning. It creates day and night. And in fact, it's the sun, it's the earth that goes around the sun taking a year to do so. Does not compute, does not compute. But we've been told that. We've seen the pictures in the book, you know, that shows all the circles around and things like that. And, and we've been tested on it. And we've all passed the test. <laughs> we now believe that the earth rotates on its axis creating day and night, and in fact the earth goes around the sun rather than the sun going around the earth, right? We all agree to that, right? And we've never, we've never been able to confirm it for ourselves, unless you're an astronomer and you can study the, st- the, s- the stars and the skies and then you can confirm it. <coughs> but most of us cannot. And so we know how to hear right view and come to believe it. Absolutely, unshakably. Right? Even though we don't have proof. Now that's dangerous in spiritual practice. Because there's a lot of people out there talking about this is the truth. But you can't confirm it. And so it's just a belief system. But in the Buddhist teaching, we hear right view. But the second element of establishing right view in our own heart and mind is we have to pay wise attention to our personal experience. Now, here is where we confirm right view. Just hearing right view is not enough. You can accept it or not based on belief, faith, hope, imagination, logic. But that's not enough. That doesn't confirm the wisdom of this view. To establish that in our heart, we need to practice, or we need the second element, which is wise attention. 
Okay, so tonight I want to talk about some of these right views. Right view of the Dharma, right view of meditation practice, right view of insight, right view of liberation. So we've got a lot to talk about. (laughs) The Dharma, as I mentioned last night, is the way things are. The way things have come to be. The unfolding of cause-effect conditioning throughout history. There's no mistakes. Anything that happens, it's due to causes and conditions. We may not understand all those causes and conditions, but we can be sure that it's not accidental. As we begin to pay closer attention to our own experience, we can see, right, even in the practice of sila, for example, if you're not careful with your sila, the precepts, and you just act out carelessly, it doesn't take long before you realize you're suffering. It causes suffering to you, it causes suffering to others, and it's just pretty obvious pretty quickly. On the other hand, if you practice sila, if you practice the precepts, and you really put some effort into noticing those intention, exercising restraint, you know, you get a very, you get a drip-feed confirmation, slowly, 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 slowly. If you don't keep it, you get a mainline confirmation doesn't work. So, keeping the precepts, we see moment after moment, moment after moment, that we're free of that kind of distress, that kind of suffering, or others are too. But if we don't keep it, we get instant feedback. You know, our own heart starts vibrating out of sync with others, with our own aspiration, and it gets worse. When we say that we're that the Dharma is the way things have come to be, or when we say that the Dharma is the truth of things, the way things are, the way things have come to be, what we're actually saying is it's nature. The Dharma is nature, the nature of things, the nature of life, the nature of plants, the nature of animals, the nature of our hearts, the nature of our mind, the nature of our life, the nature of being human is the Dharma. That's the way it is. This is this is this is it. Because so much of what, I mean, everything that happens in this body and mind is due to causes giving rise to effects. And so really when we practice the Dharma, we're practicing studying nature. We are studying the nature of being human, the nature of a human body, the nature of human mind. So in this way we are scientists of the heart scientists of the mind, if you will. So all that occurs in the body, all that occurs in the mind, is natural. It's nature. It's a natural process. We may not like it, but there's a lot of things in nature that are dangerous, that are threatening, that are terrifying even, and sometimes so too in this body and mind. We can begin to pay attention and we see that we are the operation or we are heirs of the natural laws of the universe. We are biological beings. And so we are heirs to the laws of the biological laws of nature. And the biological laws of nature say, you know, whatever's born dies. That's a fact. You know, you don't have to agree with it, but that's the way it is. It's it's a law. It's a law unto itself. We don't we don't we can't contravene it. We inherit this 
condition, biological beings. There's a lot more complexity to the biological laws of being human with DNA and just genetics and epigenetics. There's, there's just a lot that comes in this package of our own birth that is just a given that we just have to live with. You know, what your mind does, it doesn't change the biological laws. We're also heir to all the physical laws of nature. You know, the law of gravity is a physical law that we didn't make. We can't, we can't disagree with it. You don't have to believe it. But if you don't, well, <laughs> you, could, you could have some trouble. You know? What we see with the biological laws and the natural laws or the, the, the chemical laws of nature and the, the physical laws of nature is that if we understand them and we live in harmony with them, we suffer less. You don't struggle against your biology. You don't struggle against your DNA. You don't struggle against your genetics and epigenetics. You see, oh, this is this is the way it is. It's a given. Same with the, the physical laws of nature, the chemical laws, the physical laws of physics, gravity, uh, chemical reactions of food and air and water in the in the system. These are all givens. It's not like if you're a good person, it's going to be different than if you're an unskillful person. It's just a given. And so we, we pay attention to these laws because to live in harmony with them, we suffer less. Well, what we are just, what Western science is just beginning to really discover and get interested in and start to map out are the natural laws of the unfolding of the mind. Now, the Buddha looked at the mind. 2,500 years ago, and he had some pretty profound, insightful understandings of the nature of the mind and how the mind unfolds, whether it's uh, entangled in unskillful thoughts and intentions or whether it's practicing the Dharma, mindfulness, and engaged in wholesome, skillful thoughts and practices. He had a pretty good map of what's what's going on in the mind. Well, Western science, neuroscientists are, are now taking cues from Buddhist practitioners, monks, and testing some of what the Buddha uh, understood about the mind, trying to design tests to confirm or deny what the Buddha said. So I want to share a few of the Buddha's understandings of the natural, <coughs> the natural laws of the unfolding of the mind. You don't have to believe it. Western science is taking a look at these things. Some of them are being confirmed. But we could say, if this is right view, and we learn to live in alignment with it, we'll suffer less. One is that when we are born, when we're conceived, or when we come into this world, we come with a, what is called, mental legacies. Mental legacies. Now, for those of you who've had children or even seen children that are just out of the womb and they come into this world, it doesn't take them long before you start to recognize their personality. Right? Within days. You, you, you can see. This one's different than her sister. This one's different than her brother. Because there's some, I don't want to say predetermined, but they come with a package of uh, kind of 
default settings in the mind. This is what the Buddha understood. You don't have to believe it. We may not be able to answer where it comes from even, but clearly there's something there that we can observe. And the, the, the default settings are called mental legacies. There are the mental legacies of all the wholesome, skillful qualities of mind called the paramis. These are the ten qualities of mind to be developed to awaken. Generosity, living in harmony, renunciation, energy, truthfulness, loving-kindness, resolve, equanimity, wisdom, and I always forget one. Okay? So these are, these are qualities we all have on the spectrum of very generous to very miserly. We all have a kind of a default setting in there somewhere where Oh, this is this is kind of our development on that parameter, where it's easy for us to just live from that place, that level of generosity, or that level of loving kindness, or that level of equanimity. That's our default setting of the mind. We can practice more and cultivate it to develop more. And if we really try hard and neglect ourselves and do do really unskillful things, we could probably lower that default setting. But there's a baseline that we come in with. And if we look, as we, as we become more familiar with our own heart through the practice of, of mindful awareness, we can begin to see, we can begin to recognize, oh, you know, we have these, more of this quality than that quality and, and some we don't have much of and, you know, patience, that's the one I forgot, that, that's because I, I don't have any. <laughs> so, right? Okay, so there you go. Confirmation. <laughs> So, so we can we can improve by doing practice, but you know there's a there's a there's a there's a baseline minimum. There's also a um, what we call the uh, kind of the index of torments, latent torments. We all have a, a different trip wires for falling into depression, self pity, greed. Uh, all of the torments of the mind. And we all, you know, have some level of ease or tripwire to uh, participate with those states of mind. Some people ne- never get depressed. Some people are really easily depressed. Other people have no, no very little self-pity or envy. Other people are lost in it. We all have enough greed and desire to be here as a human, but some of us are quite natural renunciates easy to get along without much of anything. So we have these baselines of the unskillful states of mind also built in. I call them default settings because it's where our mind resorts to when we're just not paying particular attention. That's where the mind goes. So this is just some of the some of the understandings with the Buddha. Karma is another one. Karma, the, 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 the you know, we, we have a kind of a, a general understanding of karma in the West, of, oh, that's your, that's your bad karma to, to experience this unpleasantness or this burdensome condition in life. But that's your good karma, you know, something pleasant is happening. And, in fact, that's, that's karma resulting is responsible for the pleasure or the displeasure of our experiences. But there's much more refined understanding of karma. But the very fact that we're born as human beings 
is considered just a tremendous good karma. Because there's a lot of pleasure in the human life, right? We experience a lot of pleasure. Physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, spiritual pleasure. There's just a tremendous amount. And this is all a result of good karma. So good karmic actions result in being born as human. So we can see through the what I'm talking about that there is some laws we could call them or some something guiding the unfolding of the mind. These things are in place even as we're born and as we move through our life. So as we study or as we practice and we become more familiar with our own mind, we can see where we are where we what we have for strengths and what we have for limitations. And if you don't know what your strengths and limitations are, ask the person you live with. They know. The interesting thing is that all Dharma practices, all Dharma practices, cultivate wholesome qualities of mind. And in the process, minimize or undermine the strength of unwholesome tendencies and qualities of mind. So you don't need to worry about which should I do, this or this. Do any, do all, do every uh, wholesome practice that you can because it will strengthen those the paramis, and weaken the, the torments. This is what we learn. We see, you know, if you've been practicing for very long, you can see your own mind develop in this way. Old habits of uh, that cause you suffering get less, and better habits that at least open you to the possibility of more sense, greater sense of well-being maybe not just pleasure, but a greater sense of well-being or ease in the world, get stronger. So that's some of the right views of the Dharma that I wanted to share. I want to share some right views of meditation practice because that's that's what we're doing. That's our activity here. Now, there are many, many different ways of practicing meditation or different kinds of meditation, different traditions of meditation. But they can be essentially divided into two kinds. There's a kind of meditation that calms the mind down. And this is mantra meditations, visualizations, uh, reflections like loving-kindness, compassion, and other reflective practices. Again, it's when we send our mind uh, or direct our mind to a single thought or feeling or visualization or sound as a mantra over and over and over again. It has a tendency to calm the mind down and the disturbing influences of the torments just don't get in. So in that sense, we could say, oh, they're, they're all alike. They all have that same quality of calming the mind down. And the mind stays calm as long as you do that as long as you do that practice. Of course, it does build up a momentum, so when you stop doing that practice, the momentum carries you a little further, and eventually it just slowly dissipates. So we see something like this in action in the first few days of a retreat. The habits that we indulge in at, a, at, at home and work and in our social life, whether they're skillful or not, 
we're pretty focused on them. We're pretty, we're pretty diligent in kind of feeding them. And so when we come on a retreat and we, put us, we find ourselves in a totally different situation and it would be fine to be quite calm and still and peaceful, you know, first three days, the momentum of our mind is still going as if we were still not yet here. So that's why I have said, you know, your body arrives Friday night, your mind arrives Monday noon. <laughs> because it takes a while for so the momentum to kind of dissipate and kind of land here in the present, where it's quieter and calmer and stiller, and eventually you begin to recognize it. The second kind of... Oh, just one further, one further thing. When I was a monk, I was practicing in the monastery in Burma, and during 1988, when there was this big political uprising in Burma, and there was a lot of... The military took over, took control again, and a lot of people disappeared, and it was it was a really painful, painful time to be in Burma. And um, I was doing Vipassana practice, but when you do Vipassana practice, of course, you're open to the truth of Dukkha a lot, and the Dukkha was just overwhelming. So I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do... I want to kind of get away from the dukkha, it just it was too much. So I started doing concentration practice, because when you do concentration practice, these samadhi practices, it brings your mind close to sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha. Sukha is happy comfort of mind and body. You calm down, you open up, a lot of joy, a lot of bliss. So I started doing um, concentration practice, and I did that for, I don't know, a little more than a year, year and a half maybe, while there was this turmoil, political turmoil going on in Burma. And so I was, every day I was just developing calmness, calmness and deep, deep states of stillness. Then, shortly after that, I left Burma and came back to the West. And the momentum of that calmness took about a year to wear off. It takes a long time because it's, it's so strong and it's so... And any time I sat down, I could access it again, just boom. You know, just be there. But it gradually, I lost that capacity and... It dissipated, and the influence of all the activity here in the West um, kind of prevented me from accessing it so quickly or so deeply. But I can see, I could see how the momentum of your mind goes much longer than the intention of your mind. The intention may be there, and when it stops, the momentum still keeps going. So it's just something to understand about the mind. So that's one kind of practice, one kind of meditation. The other kind of meditation is not for calming the mind, it's for understanding the mind, understanding the heart. And so this is more like Vipassana practice. It's not just reflections. We were talking about thinking about wisdom. It's not that. It's not reading books of wisdom and trying to believe them and you know, in, in, imbibe them or kind of merge with that kind of knowledge. It's not that. That would be a samatha practice, a calming practice again. But it's through direct observation of your own experience, we come to understand our experience, I'm going to say, skillfully, through right view. We come to confirm right view. And in this way, we develop wisdom and stop suffering because of the wisdom. We let go of what we have to let go of so that we, because we understand why to let go of beliefs, assumptions, 
uh, fantasies, hopes, all, all kinds of conditioning that we have inherited by being human, living in a family, living in a culture, living in a society, getting educated. Uh, we've, we've absorbed and been conditioned by all kinds of, well, you know, frankly, unskillful thoughts, views, and opinions, and assumptions. But until we see them, until we uncover them, discover them within ourselves, we can't let go of them. So it's insight practice that looks to see the way things are and understand them to, to begin to understand them in a way where we stop suffering. So that's the main difference between the two kinds of, two kinds of meditation. In either one, in either kind of meditation, in every moment, here's my three-dimensional, in every moment, something is being known. If you're doing loving-kindness practice, there's the person that you're sending loving-kindness to, and there's the sending of the loving-kindness, that's what's being known. Or if you're practicing uh, any other kind of reflection, there's the object, or there's the person, or there's the quality, it's peacefulness, or forgiveness, or whatever it is, and that's what's being known over and over and over again. If it's Vipassana practice, it may be the breathing in is being known, breathing out is being known, thinking is being known, liking is being known, hearing sounds is being known, hearing, seeing sights is being known, hearing sights. See, seeing sights is being known. And so it can be a changing objects, but still, in every moment, there's something being known. Now this is, I mean, it sounds so... It's like, how many times have you got to say that before I get it? I got it, I got it, I got it. But actually, we don't get it. <laughs> we don't get it as an experience. We still think that mostly we're, we're trying to be with our experience without, and we don't recognize that in every moment it's just something being known, sensations being known. There's just mind and matter again and again and again. We miss it. And this is the first, this is the first preliminary insight to get in insight practice. It's not even insight yet, but it's just preliminary insight. And to get that understanding, you really have to steady your attention on the object momentarily and recognize it. Next object, steady your attention, recognize it. Next moment, steady your attention. And the objects can be changing, or they will be changing. Recognize it. And when, when we can do that, eventually we begin to see, well, that's all that's happening here. Just something being known. Something being known. Something being known. We can choose what's being known, and we might just let the attention pick the predominant experience to be known. So we say that in this experience, when we know that, that something is being known, this is object-oriented awareness. The something is what we know. So we can name that something. Breathing in, aching, thinking, planning, liking, disliking, hearing, seeing, being known, being known. That's object-oriented meditation. And a lot of us have practiced that kind of meditation. When you pay attention to the breath, breathing in, it's being known, right? Breathing out, it's being known. If you're doing loving-kindness, may you be safe, that's being known. May you be happy, that's being known. May you be healthy, that's being known. Moment after moment. But it takes what I've been pointing to in our instruction. It takes remembering 
to recognize this is what's happening. In every moment, something is being known. Remembering to recognize the present moment. And in Vipassana practice, the field of our attention is our own body and our own mind. Most of us are very skillful at looking at things, listening to things out there. Listening to music, looking at the birds, looking at the trees, looking, you know, and our attention is out there, which is okay. We can, we can get pretty interested in, you know, from a scientific point of view, in studying what's out there. But in the practice of insight, we're turning our attention inside to learn about the nature of the mind, the nature of our own suffering, how we suffer, why we suffer, how to be free of suffering. As a, as a diversion or a distraction or as a kind of a recess, you can go look at the different birds and different flowers and different trees and, and study them. And that, that's interesting. And it can be quite, you know, exciting. But it doesn't tell you much about your own mind. Okay, so the field for our attention, the objects for our attention in Vipassana practice is experiences within our own body and our own mind. I might have mentioned it earlier, but I'll mention again, that the Buddha once gave a short discourse. I think it's called the short discourse. I'd have to confirm this. But he said something to this effect that we only ever experience six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, in some kind of thought or mental process. That's it. Nothing else. You'd think with only six things to pay attention to, we wouldn't have much trouble. But even though we all only experience six things, we're not all practicing awareness of recognizing them when they're known. And that's where practice comes in. So objects, when we talk about object-oriented awareness, <coughs> objects are anything that can be known. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts. All kinds of sensations in the body, every kind of sensation in the body, every kind of thinking activity, planning, scheming, rehearsing, strategizing, uh, remembering, commenting, analyzing, figuring out, calculating, Whatever kind of activity goes on in the mind is just an object to be known. It's an activity, but it's another object to be known. All the mental states that we experience, love, hate, depression, fear, jealousy, envy, joy, bliss, ecstasy, hope, also objects to be known. Your beliefs, if if it manifests as a belief, I think it's this way, object to be known. Assumptions, objects to be known. Whatever we are aware of is just an object to be known. Now, don't take this too literally, but the development of mindfulness really doesn't depend on what object you're aware of. You can be aware of any object, all of them, or just one of them, over and over again. The mind can develop insight on any of them. What you're aware of, the object that you're aware of, doesn't determine whether you have a pure mind or not. You can, you can take a very unwholesome object and be mindful of it, and it's a wholesome state of mind. 
So that when, for example, when fear arises in the mind, fear arises, or we have there's there's conditions in life where we where we would reasonably be afraid, and we feel fear. If we make fear, which is an unwholesome, unskillful state of mind, if we make that the object of our mindful awareness, that's a wholesome state of mind. So it really doesn't matter. You don't have to have a pleasant, subtle, nice, gooey, soft, cuddly experience or object to develop mindfulness. It can be very difficult, can be very challenging, can be very unpleasant even, and you can still develop good mindfulness and insightful understanding. So it's clear when we understand, oh, this is the object, this is the, this is the practice of object-oriented uh, awareness, is to recognize in each moment that something is being known. Breathing in is being known, breathing out is being known, whatever mental state is going on is being known. It's clear that the work of meditation is the work of the mind. It's not what arises in the mind, it's what we do with that arising. Are we aware of it and knowing it or not? How are we relating to it? Are we relating to it with desire or fear or uh, interest or uh, desire, aversion, what else is there? Delusion, confusion, envy, jealousy, judgment, criticism. So this is the work of the mind. So meditation is really the work of the mind. And what I mean to point to by that is it doesn't matter if you're sitting, standing, laying down, standing on your head, at your slant, whether you're, you know, it doesn't matter. Whether you're eating, going to the toilet, taking a shower, sitting still with your eyes closed, cross-legged, on a bench, it doesn't matter. What your body's doing really doesn't matter. Except that some postures are more conducive to mental energy. Laying down is not one of them. But you may have read in Sayadaw book, that he suggests that you do at least one, one period a day of lying down meditation. Not for resting, but so that you can learn to be aware and stay awake while lying down. So this meditation is the work of the mind. It's what the mind is doing in each moment. Now, most of us have learned initially to pay attention to objects, and we do object-oriented awareness. What I have been also including in the instruction, what Utejaniya, you read in his book, points to, is to recognize the awareness that's happening in each moment. So all along I've been saying, objects arise and are being known. Another object arises and being known. If we don't pay attention to the object, but instead pay attention to the knowing and the awareness, that would be awareness-oriented meditation. So this is when I ask you to pay attention to your attitude of mind. To notice, okay, you're breathing in, breathing out. What's the attitude of mind as you practice? Is there an attitude of striving, like hypervigilance, like i got to be right on top of it, i got to make sure I don't miss it, just because I want to get every breath in it. Or is it just kind of languid and languishing, just kind of like, uh, yeah, there's something going on, maybe, oh, yeah, there's the breath, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, there's the sound, oh, yeah. 
you can see there's quite a different uh, different quality to the mind, quality to the awareness. So what I often ask people to do is just ask themselves as a way of as much technique as I'm going to offer about awareness-oriented practices. Just ask yourself, what's, what's, what attitude of mind is present? Or what's this attitude of mind? Or when you find yourself looking at observing your present moment experience, discomfort in the body or sound in the room or something, just, just for a minute, just imagine you were looking at your face. What is your face telling you about your attitude of mind? You know, because if you're scowling or if you're skeptical or if you're kind of bored or if you're kind of afraid or you're kind of interested or if you're fascinated or if you're kind of greedy or if you're kind of... You know, it's all displayed on your face. You know, so if you can, if you can begin to monitor your own facial expression, you don't have to carry a mirror with you. you we, know, we know what it's like from the inside. Then you'll begin to recognize your attitude of mind. Because the mind that is, the, the mind that is open and allowing and interested and aware and willing to acknowledge the way things are, is very different than the mind that's trying, striving, critical, judging. I can't you see my own face going. <laughs> so, this is what we want to monitor to to recognize that yes, objects are arising and passing away. Many different kinds. What you experience as an object, not important. I know that sounds kind of like, what? It's not important. What's important is the quality of the awareness. So can we... Yeah, there can't be an awareness if there's no object. So there's going to be an object. But rather than focusing on and getting entangled in the object... We want to recognize the quality of awareness of the object. Okay? I know this isn't what you've heard. But this is what I want you to try. Okay. So, inside practice, the Pasna practice, is observing, learning to observe with interest. The observing is mindfulness and the interest is the quality or the attitude of mind. And we're not trying to create something. That is, I, I spoke to someone's question, are we, why, why is it wrong to try to create something? Well, there's greed, there's attachment, there's hope, there's expectation, there's hanging on to this idea of something to create. Neither are we trying to get rid of anything. Whatever has arisen, let that be what you observe. We're not, we're not looking for a better experience. We're looking for this moment's experience. Now the Buddha was asked, how is it that some people are very wise? Some people are really wise. They make skillful decisions that lead their life in a, in a, in a wholesome direction and they enjoy the abundance of pleasure and happiness and well-being that comes with that. And why are other people constantly making bad choices, bad decisions, leading their life into the ditch where there's just more suffering. And in all honesty, we, we all do a, a lot of both. But nevertheless, when the Buddha was asked, he said, those who ask a lot of questions develop wisdom. It's not asking questions of teachers. It's not asking questions to go find the answer in the book or on Wikipedia. 
It's asking questions of ourself. What is this? What is going on here? What is this experience? What's going on here? Is there awareness here? What's this attitude of mind? So we're, we're asking questions of ourself, not to badger ourselves, but to direct our mind towards understanding ourselves. Carl Sagan, another great psychonaut, explorer of the mind that I've been interested in lately, he said something like, avoidable human misery is more often caused by ignorance than uh, intention, something like that. And particularly, ignorance about ourself. It's ignorance because we don't know ourself that we get entangled in all kinds of avoidable human suffering. Mark Epstein's a psychiatrist in New York, also a diamond practitioner, and he writes about the mind in this way. He says, as the Buddhist view, right view, has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If instead we just try to change our emotional relationship to something, we may achieve some short-term success, but we still remain bound by the force of attachment and aversion to the feelings that we're trying to be free from. Let me put this in common English language. (laughs) If we find that we're entangled in some experience with a lot of anger, okay, we can say, we can recognize that anger and go, whoa, wait a minute, let me practice loving kindness. May you be happy, may may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering. And we can calm down and we get some, well, as I mentioned, just a symptomatic relief from that suffering of anger. But that doesn't change our misunderstanding that led to the arising of aversion in the first place. Okay. So to change one's view, we have to work through this this experience. Pay attention to this experience to discover the underlying beliefs and assumptions that allow us to resort to anger. This is insight. This is how we, when, when, when anger arises, we don't just kind of uh, paper it over or kind of uh, get some symptomatic relief by practicing metta. We take a look at all the pixels of, and layers of phenomena that is making up this angry, reactive state of mind. And somewhere in there is a view of ourself, our sense of self, that is solid, that got hurt. They got, they got shame. They got humiliated. That's something. And that view of self has been held solidly in this angry reaction since it happened. That view of self has to be seen through. We have to de- de- uh, uh, deconstruct, really, that sense of self by depixelating or pixelating this whole experience of this angry reaction. 
So we pixelate it through, oh, here's a memory, here's a plan, here's a thought of revenge, and here's sensations in the body, and here's and other angers, and other da, 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 and here's how I feel, and here's the original hurt, and oh, poor me. Self-pity. And then there's, we, we, get, we get in there. You, know, you, you can't think your way, you can't think your way into this. You can only observe your way into it. If you're just willing to acknowledge each, each layer of conditioning that's, that's hiding the truth in there. But once you see that, once you get there, you will, you will discover something that's, that's just invaluable. All of this that you've experienced is just ephemeral, evanescent, impermanent, fleeting pixels of phenomena. There's no one there. There's feelings, but no one who feels. There's thoughts, but no one who thinks. There's memories, but no one has no one who has that memory. This is insight. This is what we see through Vipassana, through the eyes of Vipassana, or Dharma view, if you will, by, by this wise attention to the unfolding of moment-to-moment experience, we deconstruct the solidity through these three insights into the impermanent nature of all phenomena, into the unsatisfactory nature, characteristic of all phenomena, and into the, let's call it, the impersonal, the evanescent, conditioned nature, characteristic of all phenomena. And in this way, we get to the mistaken belief that I got hurt. I'm afraid. I'm ashamed. I'm whatever. There's no I there. There's fear, but no one who's afraid. There's shame, but no one who's ashamed. This is right view. To you now, it's only knowledge. You might believe it, but you need to confirm it. We confirm it through our practice. Each one of you will have plenty of time tomorrow. You'll have, you'll have things arising that you can look at. And there'll be you know, pain and emotions and thoughts and feelings. And, and if you hang in there with it and just keep watching the unfolding of phenomena... Steadying your attention, recognizing the awareness. Don't get lost in what you're aware of. Steady, steady, steadify. No, sounds like steady, steadify. What do you say? Make steady, stabilize. Stabilize, stabilize the awareness. Steadify. Stabilize your awareness so that whatever arises, you, you don't get entangled in it. You just see it as something arising, being known. Something else arising, being known. This is the way to work something through, change our beliefs and assumptions about ourselves. And this is what Vipassana does. This is how Vipassana works. This is the development of wisdom that liberates the, the heart, liberates the mind. Being aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice to come to new understandings. Ultimately, 
It will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insight. The objective of mindfulness meditation is Vipassana insights. Vipassana always steps back to see things more clearly, where samatha or concentration, tranquility practices, dive into the object and get absorbed in the object. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. The Sutta So this is the importance of right view. Understanding really what it is that we're doing here. Yes, we're developing mindfulness. Why? For the development of insight, the passing insight. So that we can deconstruct this suffering self. All forms of suffering. Which we assume is here. Which we believe is here. Which all of our perceptions and all of our instruction from all of our parents and teachers and peers and has confirmed that I'm me. Vipassana will show you something else. So thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.